This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, thanks for your company today. Coming up on The Country Hour, how good was it to have the Royal Adelaide show back last year? The Grains and Fodder section have put the call out to make sure you get your entries in for the Grains competition because last year's entries were a little bit light on. Mainly I think we people would sort of lost the, the theme of collecting the entries at harvest and then waiting for them to be judged. Some people actually collected entries at harvest and then they got misplaced or lost before we had time to collect them. So I think it was a bit of pressure on everybody and that's why we're trying... You know, this year, get in early. It's a late harvest, so there's still areas, you know, a lot of areas still to harvest. We'll have more on that and how you can get your entries in very shortly. But first today, although the threat of foot and mouth disease was a very real fear of six months ago, some feel it's almost been forgotten as bigger things have taken centre stage. But, one, but for one partialist, the potential threat of the disease caused big losses, forcing him to sell his cattle for half their value. And even though FMD hasn't made it to Australian shores, Western Australia's Murchison partialist Nigel Brown says he believes the scare did a lot of damaged the cattle industry's reputation. Yeah, it really impacted us, you know, when everything was green and rosy and obviously got aeroplanes in and conducted a muster and got all our cattle down heading towards the yards and the FND speculation then started to unfold and, you know, the more the media broadcasted it, you know, the, the lower the cattle prices went and we virtually ended up having, having to settle it or settle and sell our cattle for half of their value. And as you mentioned, a big part of that was speculation, maybe fear that people were hearing. What was the message exactly that was being put out that people were understanding the situation to be? I think it was just so much scare tactics that, you know, if it came in, all the cattle value would be worth nothing, even though it was a, you know, a localised incident then it was the risk that all the partials would have to then either, you know, destock and, and the flood of cattle to the market, what that would do. And, you know, it was really everything then unfolded in people's minds versus reality and, and the price really took a big dive. And that would have been experienced across the board, is that correct? Yes, yeah, sadly, had you had cattle in the yard to sell that, that week or two, you know, that the speculation was all unfolding, then, yeah anyone in a bad situation like that unfortunately like we were would have the same consequence. So then what was the next step once you had to sell your cattle at that decreased rate what then happened after that? It's like any news story you wait a week or two or three after it and everyone forgets about it and the price goes back to where you know, close to where it originally was. So how harmful would you have said that whole experience was? Obviously, we're talking about um, a monetary loss, but did you feel as though reputation was also damaged through that? Oh, I think every, everything. You know, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars was lost, your morals were lost, your spirit was just destroyed. You know, everything good you were trying to do was just totally unfolded in a week. Now, what's your feeling? Do you feel secure and or was it or, or did you always feel that way? Look, I think it's always in the back of your mind, you know, and it, and it really does depend how good we have quarantine and the borders and, you know, international travels and, you know, those high-risk areas and helping, you know, our neighbouring countries to try and get it under control before it's a problem to us. So I think 
you know, risk mitigation there is priority number one. I mean, it's always a, a minor threat to us here, you know, but the sad fact is we can't vaccinate against it because if we do, it's a, it's a live virus and we'll then be treated as if we have foot and mouth. So, you know, it's, it's a bad situation to be in. Yes, we could fix it and vaccinate, but then we jeopardise our own market again. So now is it just the matter of moving on with business and, and fingers crossed, obviously it doesn't arrive to our shores, but then, yeah, just, just getting on with it? Yeah, like now, it's you know, around the campfire, it's not even talked about except our big loss. Um, <laughs> other than that, it's, it's not even on anyone's radar, really. It's, you know, it's something to be aware of, but really not talked about. Yeah, and I guess that's what sort of the takeaway here is. Although five months ago that was a very real issue, everyone's moved on. We're now we're now talking floods, fires, uh, etc. Do you, in, on some level, feel as though the impacts have still carried on, but everyone's just forgotten and moved on? Well, I mean, from our side, the impacts are definitely carrying on. You know, we had big budgets in with the banks, and we have to review all those budgets now with them and meetings tomorrow and. You know, and and change our end goals and game plans to address the deficit in financial loss. And yeah, so we'll, we'll definitely be feeling this one for a, a long time to come. Western Australia's Murchison pastoralist Nigel Brown speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. Now, we're still a while away from show season, but in 2023, expect to see a lot more dirt at your local ag show. Agricultural Shows Australia is providing grants to show societies to put on soil judging competitions. ASA Executive Officer Katie Stanley told Megan Hughes the Grains, Oilseeds, Pulses and Soils Learning Program is to get young Aussies focusing on one of the most important parts of farming. So what happened with this grant is that there was enough money for our state affiliates, which are the state bodies that look after all agricultural shows, the the small regional agricultural shows in each state. They were provided with $3,000 so that at the state level, they could assist some of their groups of shows, so more so in a group level, to get that grains and soils competitions up and running. They got $3,000 for the state affiliates and that $3,000 will allow them to get the resources that they need to put grain competitions throughout different groups of shows. So for example, in New South Wales, up in group 13 that we, you know, there's about 12 different shows up there and they will they will do those competitions at a group level. The Royal Shows also had a grant for $3,000, again, to put together enough resources um, that they need to put on a grains and soils competition. That's obviously at the next level. It's more so once they've got through a group level, they then go to a state competition, which is always uh, run at a royal show. So there was um, a bit of a trial that happened in South Australia, if I'm correct. How did that all work? Yeah, we had a trial of our soils competition because it's probably the newest competition that hasn't been run before. A couple of the other states run grains competitions sort of haphazardly. The soils competition is very, very new. So we had to, we worked with Soil Science Australia and we put together um, a criteria around what you know how to how to judge soils so we took different core samples of soils and they did it where they invited a couple of people a couple of people who'd never done soil judging before and a couple of people who potentially were doing it as part of you know soil science australia said oh these people have you know had a bit of knowledge around soils so it was really interesting to get people who'd never done anything to do with soils and people who had and they ran the competition purely with physical samples and classifying the different samples into soil types 
and then they spoke on how they classified them and why they classified them in the in those particular soil types and they were and they were judged on their justification and how and what their end outcome for that soil type was we believe that we can roll that trial out across all the states. So with the people taking part in these competitions, what are you hoping that they take away from it? I guess the aim of of understanding what different soil types produce and how those different soil types can be managed as well. The hope is that if we can get younger people, you know, those that haven't necessarily got to the university age interested in soils, it's just another avenue of agriculture that we hope students will go into because as we all know if we want to produce the food well endless food you know not over the next hundred years but continually soil and the management of soil is imperative to the future of farming. Why is it so important that you use agricultural shows as a method of education rather than say going to um, a high school science class or something like that? Yeah absolutely so you know traditionally agricultural shows were were started for showcasing agricultural excellence and to show what people produced. And as, as more and more people get further and further away from farming in terms of generational you know, a connection to farming, it's imperative that our ag shows become that educational space for those people who aren't necessarily you know, third generation farmers. Even if it's to go past and walk through a pavilion whereby there's a, is a QR code, which we've done a few live um, interactive displays, where they can use their phones and they can scan a code and it says, this is, you know, where is wheat produced? And they understand that wheat's produced mostly all around Australia. And they have the opportunity to learn in a space that they wouldn't normally have the opportunity to. Agriculture Shows Australia Executive Officer Katie Stanley speaking to Megan Hughes. And let's uh, let's stay on this topic of um, ag shows and the Royal Adelaide Show. And are you still out and about on the header or do you still have grain or hay on farm that you are pretty proud of? Well, the call's been put out to save some for the Royal Adelaide Show Grains and Fodder competitions. Bill Rowett is a committee member with the Grains and Fodder section at the show. And I spoke to him about how it was so great to have the show back last year. Oh, it was uh, an effort worth waiting for. Um, there were times when we weren't sure exactly how it was all going to work out, but it turned out to be magnificent. The support from the people agriculturally and public was magnificent, and it just, yeah, it was great. Did you still manage to, when there weren't the shows, did you still manage to have the grains competition? Yes, we were one of the few lucky committees um, the show was actually cancelled about a week before our judging day in 2021 and we had everything organised, judges, all, everything was done. All the sponsors had agreed to their prize monies and so we put it to the show bosses and they agreed that we could run the competition, which we did. We did our judging day on the normal day and then we had uh, all the prizes were presented or sent out to the people. We had nothing formal but we did actually have the competition, which was very good. Fantastic. And how did the, uh, the the comp go in 2022? It was, I think it was a fact, it was just down a little bit entry-wise, small number of entries, a smaller number of entries. Mainly, I think we, people would sort of lost the theme of collecting the entries at harvest and then waiting for them to be judged. Some people actually collected entries at harvest and then they got misplaced or lost. 
before we had time to collect them. So I think it was a bit of pressure on everybody, and that's why we're trying you know, this year to get in early. It's a late harvest, so there's still areas, you know, a lot of areas still to harvest. And with the huge crops we're hearing about, and quality obviously not quite as good, but with the huge crops around, this is a time for us to try and get some entries uh, at least get the farmers to take the samples so that we can have them for our entries and their competition you know, later on. What do they need to collect? Or how much grain do they need to collect for the samples? Well, in the, in the grains like canola and the legumes and the cereals, it's a three kilogram sample, which is normally about the equivalent of an ice cream, five litre ice cream container. Not to put them in a plastic bag, that's not in the best interest of the grain because that's not judged until um, August. But um, about the size of a five-litre ice cream container. Um, the show society has bags, sample bags that we can send out or people can call into the showgrounds or call into the committee members and collect them. The main thing is while they're harvesting, to, if they think they've got a good sample or they're sending a load away, it comes back as with a good test weight and good results, good protein, to take a sample now and then... We, we'll deal with it later on. And it's not only the adult farmers that you're targeting. You obviously want uh, the, the kids that are out on the farm at the moment maybe helping with harvest to uh, to get on to, to mum or dad or, or grandma and grandpa or maybe uh, uncle or auntie to uh, to get samples as well for the kids section. Well, this is something that um, the school children's competitions at the show are just growing year by year and we've just introduced some sections um, for the hay and the grains and pulses. And, um, yeah, the idea is Dad hasn't got time to collect the sample. The kids are home on school holidays, let them go out. So, as I say, some of them are helping with the harvest, collect the samples. And the thing we've done this year is last year we, um, we've we reduced the entry fee for the school children's sections or classes. So instead, last year it was $10, and when we thought about it, we thought that was probably a little bit too steep even though most of the parents probably paid for the entries. Um, so we've reduced that to $5 per entry this year, hoping to get some more. But that's the idea, just get the children to go out and collect the samples. Dad will tell them where to go, Grandpa will tell them where to go, someone will tell them where to go, and then store them and deal with it um, later on once harvest is finished. You mentioned there as well uh, there's a, a section for hay too, Bill. Yes. The, uh, we all know that with all the spring rains that have made the big cereal harvest, happen. The hay has been spoilt on our farm in particular and many farms. Spring rain just spoilt the quality of the hay. But yeah, if anybody has some good hay we certainly, there's room for them um, with the schools classes and the um, children's classes as well as the adults. Our final uh, classes are being completed and organised by about the 1st of February. That was Bill Rowett, a committee member with the Grains and Fodder section at the Royal Adelaide Show. It's 20 minutes past 12. This is the Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Let's head to the markets now and we're joined by John Trager. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon. Quality was extremely mixed as agents offered 5,000 lambs and 2,000 sheep for the opening sale of the season. A full field of buyers were in attendance and all were operating in a sale that opened up to $30 in advance of the previous sale. Light lambs sold from 86 to 110 with medium weights ranging from 114 to 136. The best of the heavyweight lambs ranged from 190 to 205 as extreme weight heavyweights sold up to $40 dearer making from 196 to $251 per head. 
Mutton salt are an easier trend with a good selection of medium and heavyweight ewes selling from $70 to $100 per head. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, quality was generally good as agents offered 150 live weight cattle and 10 open auction cattle. A good feel of buyers were in attendance and all operated, and pro- but prices, however, returned a much easier trend in this opening sale for 2023. Ealing steers sold in a wide range from 488 cents to 540 cents, with Ealing heifers returning 362 to 482 cents. Grown steers sold from 320 to 414 cents, as medium cows sold at 220 cents. A small offering of bulls sold from 220 to a top of 316 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger, the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks very much, John, and uh, great to have you back for the market report. Let's go to the southeast now. We're joined by Tim Delaney. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Cattle numbers more than doubled to approximately 1,300 head at Mount Gambia. Quality was mostly good to fair. The larger buying gully turned the market and bidding remained spirited. Some prices were mixed with cows sold from 5 to 12 cents dearer. Bulls eased 5 to 15 cents. Vealers and the yearlings sold 20 to 30 cents cheaper. The growing cattle were 10 to 20 cents softer. Vealer steers to the trade made from 355 to 440 cents. Heifers made from 330 to 400. The restockers and feeders paid mainly from 360 to 420 cents. Yearling steers made from 330 to 432 cents. The feeders to 430. Heifers sold from 310 to 400 cents a kilogram. Growing steers were from 310 to 400 cents as the feeders paid to 420 cents a kilogram. A grown heifer sold from 300 to 400 cents. Heavy cows sold from 300 to 335 cents. Heavy bulls made from 300 to 330. And now to the uh, to the uh, narrow court cattle market. Cattle numbers lifted to 826. Quality was mixed from very good to plain. Usual buy tender not all offered fully, fully as there was less demand. Price for the younger cattle is from 10 to 30 cents. Some isolated sales back further. Planting younger cow, cattle and cows and plus the grown cattle were from 15 to 40 cents cheaper compared to the more small sale last week. Males made of 17 bulls, 595 trade, 201 cows and 12 that were open auction. Steer villas to trade made from 400 to 450 cents. Tepper villas sold from 390 to 424. Villas of both six suiting feeders and restocks made from 382 to 448 cents. Yearly steers sold from 368 to 434 cents, and the yearly heifers made from 307 to 410. Steer yearlings to feeders made from 370 to 425 cents. Feeders, restockers, and feeders paid from 300 to 440. Heifer yearlings going back onto feed sold from 334 to 424 cents. Grown steers made mostly 315 to 412 cents. Feeders paid from 360 to 420. Uh, the grown heifers sold mostly from 275 to 370 cents, reaching 392. Beef cows of heavyweight made from 278 to 326 cents. Dairy bread cows mainly sold from 225 to 290. And restockers purchased cows from 210 to 240 cents. Heavy bulls sold from 300 to 330 cents. Now to the lamb market. There was an increase in lamb supply to 4,835, and the quality was very good to average. Some more presented extra heavy, heavy trade and medium trade weight lambs made up a large portion of the yarding. All the regular lamb buyers present, the competition remained steady throughout the market. Prices were firmed a few dollars dearer. Restockers purchased lambs from $88 to $150, $54. Very good. Merino lamb sold from $185 to $200. Hoggets made to $125. Most lamb sales ranged in cost from $750 to $810 a kilogram carcass weight. Light lambs for prices made from $79 to $106. Light tray weight sold from $117 to $137. Medium tray weight lambs $143 to $180. Heavier tray weight sold from $184 to $295. 
heavy lambs mate from 198 to 242 on the extra heavy lambs sold from 244 to the market top of 270. Sheet numbers also lifted to 1,140, with the usual buying group showing a slightly stronger demand for Martin. Lightweight sheep sold from 53 to $63, medium weight smoke from 65 to 96 crossbred used with a cover sold from 90 to $147, and a merino weather sold for 130 This has been Tim Delaney for MLA Narracourt. Thanks very much, Tim. Let's head to the Weather Bureau now. We're joined by John Fisher, Senior Forecaster. Good afternoon, jo- uh, John. How are you going? Yeah, good, thanks, Brooke. That's good. What's happening around the state? Yeah, so look, we, we are seeing this heat uh, continue to build uh, across the, the state. Uh, so we have what uh, is classed as a, a low-intensity heat wave uh, starting to develop across most parts of the state, except those southern coastal areas, which uh, are still seeing uh, the, the milder influence of some uh, onshore winds. Uh, but uh, yeah, those sea breezes and onshore winds that we have been uh, seeing over the last couple of days are starting to ease back, and that's because a high-pressure system, which uh, was situated to the south, of our state has moved into the Tasman Sea and uh, yeah, the, the, those winds are a little bit lighter uh, now but uh, yeah, look, uh, generally we are looking at uh, temperatures uh, away from the coast getting into the uh, the mid-30s today uh, but uh, yeah, those coastal fringes are still remaining in the, the kind of uh, mid to high 20s. Uh, there is some cloud up across uh, parts of the northern agricultural area and, and southern pastorals uh, at the moment uh, and we have seen the, a little bit of shower activity under that, not too much, but uh, Yanta there east of the Flinders Ranges has seen a couple of millimetres this morning, uh, and as we move through the afternoon, we, we might see some further shower and thunderstorm activity develop across those northern agricultural areas and southern pastorals, uh, and maybe even some of those thunderstorms could be a little bit gusty, so uh, there is a slight chance we, we need to uh, issue some thunderstorm warnings for that activity, but, but not a lot of rainfall uh, in it. Uh, so yeah, over the next couple of days, uh, Brooke, uh, th- any thunderstorm activity starts to contract a little bit further north, so up uh, across the, the northern uh, pastoral districts there, and generally it will be drier uh, across the, the remainder, and we're just going to see uh, that, that heat continue to, to build. So uh, as we move through Thursday, Friday, uh, we are looking at those temperatures getting up uh, into the, the high 30s, even uh, low 40s in parts, and, and that heat wave starts to intensify across uh, some western inland areas where we are uh, looking at a, a severe heat wave uh, developing. Um, but uh, we do see that this milder change come through uh, on Saturday. So uh, timing of that change will uh, kind of, well, depending on the timing of that, it, it, you'll see uh, differing temperature maximums across the state on Saturday. But uh, across western and, and southern coastal parts, uh, you know, we'll see that change first. So probably sometime uh, during the, the, the morning on Saturday. But it will take a little bit of time to, to move inland uh, and see some relief for, for more of those inland parts. Uh, and ahead of that, uh, we do have some northerly winds, not too strong, fortunately. Uh, most of the wind is in behind that change, quite a fresh southerly coming in later Saturday. Uh, but, yeah, with that heat and, and a bit of wind around, uh, we are seeing some potential uh, low-end kind of extreme uh, fire danger ratings there for Saturday. So, so keep an eye out for potential fire weather warnings there. Uh, and then for Sunday... Uh, we are looking at those uh, milder southerlies, uh, yeah, uh, continuing to, to move inland and still some freshness in the wind around southern parts. Uh, but, uh, yeah, th- that uh, uh, milder conditions across the south will probably be short-lived uh, with, with temperatures building into early next week and, uh, and, and some of that shower and thunderstorm activity as well becoming a 
bit more extensive uh, across parts of the state uh, as we move through uh, yeah that latter part of the weekend and in, into early next week uh, uh, yeah it looks potentially a bit unstable and, and a bit humid uh, as well early next week so maybe the best chance of, of some rainfall in, in a while for some southern parts of the, the state uh, early next week but uh, yeah over the the next few days we're, we're just looking at that uh, heat continuing to, to to build brook thanks very much john have a good afternoon thank you John Fisher, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Let's head to the Western Inlands for tomorrow. Upper Western, partly cloudy with the slight chance of a shower in the afternoon and the evening, uh, the chance of a thunderstorm. Overnight temperatures falling to 22 to 28 with daytime temperatures reaching around 40. For the lower western, mostly sunny with a slight chance of a shower in the far east in the afternoon and evening. Near zero chance of rain elsewhere. The chance of a thunderstorm in the northeast in the afternoon and evening. Overnight temperatures falling to 20 to 25 with daytime temperatures reaching the high 30s. Plenty more to come on the country hour. We're going to hear about... uh, Free fees for 2023 if you're looking at uh, studying some ag courses at TAFE. We'll hear more on that shortly, plus plenty more to come. We're going to head to Maipalonga as well. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Brooke Nindorf. Brooke Nindorf. Hello, thanks for your company on this Wednesday afternoon. Coming up, we're going to check in with the Murraylands region about how the flooding situation is going. Plus, have you stayed at a farm stay set up before? They're becoming more and more popular and some farmers are trialling different styles of accommodation as well. I wanted to build something up the top so we could enjoy the views because we've got really nice views. And a girlfriend of mine said, well, why don't you get a yurt? And I didn't even know what a yurt was. So I started researching them and really liked them. Next thing, a girlfriend and I, both 60-plus-year-old ladies, went to outer Mongolia and bought a container load of yurts back. Coming up, we're going to find out exactly what a yurt is, but also the rising boom of farm stays. I want to hear from you. Have you stayed at one before? What did you think? Was the experience something that you enjoyed or would you never do it again? Send me a text on 0467 922891. But before that, let's head to the newsroom. We're joined by Evelyn Leckie. Good afternoon, Ev. Good afternoon, Brooke. Making news this hour. Cardinal George Pell, Australia's highest-ranked Catholic figure, has died in Rome at the age of 81. George Pell died of heart complications after hip surgery. The Cardinal was sent to prison for child sexual abuse in 2019 but had his convictions quashed. He was in charge of Vatican finances between 2014 and 2019. A man has been committed to stand trial in the South Australian Supreme Court over the murder of his travel companion in Venus Bay on the Air Peninsula in May last year. In the Port Augusta Magistrates Court, via video link and through his lawyer, 44-year-old Adam Troy Bennett pleaded not guilty to murder. He's accused of murdering 64-year-old Peter Hillier, who police allege was viciously beaten behind an art gallery in Putra. Mr Hillier's body was found in a holiday home at Venus Bay a day later when the accused called an ambulance for him. And a section of the Princess Highway is at risk of closure because of rising water flows in the River Murray. Department for Infrastructure and Transport is monitoring part of the highway between Taylor Bend and Meningi. High water levels have been observed in the area. And more ABC News at 1 o'clock. 
Thanks so much, Evelyn. Evelyn Leckie in the newsroom. Brooke Nindorf with you. And uh, at the end of last year, my Polonga was announced as the Ag Town of the Year. And while the celebrations were had, they didn't get to last too long as the attention soon turned to the potential flooding situation. Locals in the Murraylands region are carefully watching the floodwaters. Some priming producers have already been affected in the region, but others are still waiting for the waters to arrive. To find out how the area is looking, I caught up with Steve Hine earlier today, who's an agronomist in the Murraylands region and also chair of the Maipalonga Progress Association. Yeah, on the, on the whole, um, the season, um, winter season, winter crops and that have been fantastic in this area with the amount of rain that, that's fallen. There's there's some uh, negative sides of that with some disease and uh, grain yields, uh, sorry, grain loss onto the ground. But as far as the uh, water side of the um, conversation goes, it's um, astonishing, amazing, uh, almost bewildering the amount of water that's been uh, inundating the, the non channel area of the, the traditional river and yeah, similar to, to 56 I suppose from an um, outsider's point of view and someone who wasn't around back in those days uh, by, the, by the comments that uh, others are making but nowhere near to that level or response at this stage. We've heard a lot about dairy farmers being inundated with water but has there been many grain and broadacre farmers that have had water come into their, their paddocks? No, there'd be isolated um, areas. Um, I actually look after a, a, a farmer up near Walker's Flat and uh, they had a crop of uh, beans, favour beans, sown into some low-lying area and some of that was inundated. Uh, and I'm sure there'd be other ones here and there, but nothing as, as far as wide scale goes. Most of the effect on the broadacre side of things would be uh, loss of water pumping facilities uh, due to power etc. To, to livestock and possibly even homes and gardens um, along the length of the river. The area um, around there has, has got a lot of uh, produce. There's, as, as we've spoken about, dairy and, and the, the broadacre there, but you know, onions, potatoes, citrus, all sorts of, of produce. How are they faring at the moment as well? Yeah, absolutely. I was talking to an onion grower just this morning um, about his concerns about getting the uh, onion crop, uh, his, his current crop, uh, through to um, maturity, which is approximately four weeks from now for that, that particular variety. There's others that we need to um, still be maintained for a lot longer uh, with the heat waves or, or higher temperatures we're, we're having at the moment, obviously more irrigation requirements, and um, there's been a lot of infrastructure and um, additional costs involved with uh, maintaining the facilities to uh, allow those crops to be maintained. Citrus, um, again, from the Riverland all the way down through to, uh, say, Microlonga, for instance, there's been a lot of work done with levees to protect pumps and substations and uh, transformers and that sort of thing um, up and down the river. I guess there's that uh, immediate impact, but there's that long-term recovery as well that's going to be going on for not only months but, but years, I imagine. Are people already looking forward to what they're going to have to do for, for recovery? stage it's just starting to become the topic uh, certainly in the areas that I move both socially and um, professionally with work that's very much the topic of, of discussion at the moment what's going to be going forward how will it look going forward uh, we're talking the the reclaimed pasture swamps uh, top areas uh, mainly will there be wetlands maintained ongoing rather than returning to pasture all these unknown questions are certainly uh, front and centre of, of people's minds at the moment and probably to the point of making people anxious almost to uh, see what the future might, might hold going forward. 
We heard of uh, one dairy farming family who are just having to, to sell up because of the, uh, the flood waters. Have you heard of others that, that might be in that similar situation? Uh, there's there's um, down the lower end of the Murraylands, there's a number that are considering their, their future just directly of what they can control, um, as, as that family has. There's a number that have had to shift um, not only locations but sometimes um, towns to continue milking and, and share facilities with others um, that may be in a higher, higher area or are in higher areas to continue milking. Um, the milk factories and the people involved, not just uh, on the land, but all the, the structure behind the scenes from getting the milk um, from these dairies to the, the factories and the whole the whole bit, it's been a massive change and modifications required just to uh, maintain what was a fairly standard procedure. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a lot of lot of activity happening in future planning and. and Prime Ministries have been very, very good as have the um, dairy bodies um, assisting and getting alongside of these people. Yeah, that, that support has been huge from what I've been hearing. And, and Steve Hine, you're president of the Maipalonga Progress Association and Maipalonga was announced as the Ag Town of the Year for 2022. And one of those reasons was the, the support shown to everyone in the area. Are you finding that that's still continuing and, and uh, or increasing even more? Absolutely, even more so. It was a little bit strange. We uh, had, the, I guess, the award ceremony in in um, November, and um, that was on a Friday night. And by Sunday, we were into um, flood flood mode, so there wasn't a lot of time to celebrate. But hopefully, that will, will happen going forward. As far as the support for the, the local communities, and I see this um, community based everywhere along the river, um, even the Broadacre areas uh, are. Chipping in, helping with um, hay and, and um, stock, I guess, housing stock, uh, adjusting stock, um, taking stock off people's hands to just look after them for a while until the until the swamps uh, pastures become workable again. So it's been amazing the uh, support um, again, not just at uh, farmer level, but uh, local council and state governments and, and the whole bit uh, are all doing their their thing, and, and that's building as we go. Has there been much discussion about the uh, the recent funding announcement, in particular with the, the primary uh, producers' grants that are available, the $75,000? Has there been much talk about that and, and what that might be able to do to help or if it is enough? Not a lot of chat, to be honest. Um, announced last week, um, the, the general discussion is it's a drop in the ocean. It's the first of what will hopefully be more grant money, more, more offers of, of money to support these people that are being massively affected. But, yeah, at this stage, anyone below uh, Murray Bridge uh, is still very much um, hoping to um, contain the water um, and keeping it on the, the other side of their, their levees and sandbagging and doing other, other work towards that, whereas uh, above Murray Bridge, it, it's all been inundated now in the lower areas and they're starting to get their heads around that future, but at this stage, it's still very much uh, game on in, across the Murraylands. Just finally, uh, Steve, you are an agronomist uh, in the region. How is uh, is harvest still going in some parts of that area? Absolutely. In the broadacre side of things, there's still grain harvesting going. A lot of guys are, are still um, taking the opportunity that, that if they have got off the headers, they're um, putting hay in, in rows or, or taking off paddocks so they can start controlling the summer weeds. So, yeah, it really hasn't stopped this year and the, the annual holiday period and that sort of thing really hasn't happened. And before we know it, back at school and, and we'll be starting the whole cycle again. So it's been very full on this year. What's quality and, and quantity been like? 
Quality has been a bit all over the place. Um, some yields have been extremely high. Others have been disappointing for the for the rain that we've had. Some of that is to do with, as I said earlier, the, the grain that stayed in the stalk. Uh, we've had some serious winds in the, the later part with the delayed harvesting due to the moisture rain, etc. Um, the opportunity to, to grab that off the, the paddock with with a timely manner um, was delayed. So, um, yeah, it's been a bit all over the place, but I think most people would be happy with uh, the yields that they've got for the season. Um, the pricing was really good, and that has subsequently dropped off a little bit. But, uh, yeah, pretty much uh, upbeat at this stage. Steve Hine, he's an agronomist in the Murraylands region and also chair of the Maipalonga Progress Association. To fires now, and firefighters, emergency service experts and climate scientists are warning about the grass fire season ahead. The last time there was record flooding in Australia was in 1974 when it was followed by Australia's largest ever bushfire, which burnt 177 million hectares, fuelled by dry grass across South Australia, New South Wales and the Northern Territory. Former Commissioner of Fire and Rescue New South Wales, Greg Mullins, remembers the fires that year and he told Michael Condon he's worried about the current modelling that shows three years of a Nina could be followed with a hot and dry El Nino. Back in 1975, I recall it quite vividly, I was a young bushfire brigade volunteer at the time and went camping out near Broken Hill at Mitwingy and um, I got lost because the grass was two metres high, six foot high and I, I couldn't find the car park. And some months later, that all went brown, died off and burnt and there were massive grass fires in New South Wales, 4.8 million hectares, 119 million hectares nationally. Uh, the fires started in Northern Territory in July and burnt right through to March. And that's the record, isn't it? That's the, that's the biggest fire in Australia's history. Yeah, Black Summer were the worst and most destructive fires, about, depending who you talk to, 20 to 30 million hectares of forest, which is quite a different thing to grass. Mm. Um, the 1975 fires did very little damage. They just sort of meandered around for months because there wasn't much wind and the temperatures weren't extreme. But look, that's what happens after a triple La Nina. We've only had three. So it's no surprise that we're already seeing grass fires in western New South Wales as it gets drier and hotter, leading into all the way to April. We could have widespread grass fires in New South Wales, um, parts of South Australia, southwestern Queensland. Um, And of course now there's a prospect of swinging back to El Nino, which often brings droughts, heat waves and bushfires and that's not going to be welcome news for anybody on the land. And that has happened in the past, they're saying that ha- does happen quite often in the past, not all the time but it does happen and, and some of the climate scientists are saying it's more likely now. Well that's right, the, I'm told that the climate signals, they're very very clear the climate signals in weather extremes, so we saw the black summer fires, those were the worst as I said, the worst forest fires ever recorded. Uh, everything else through history in European history in Australia paled into insignificance because it was the hottest, driest year ever, the windiest, etc. Um, so we had incredible fires. There was no El Nino. It was the first time, or well, 2013 actually, was the first time we had major bushfires without the intensifying effect of an El Nino. So that's a signal about warming, what warming does. If you warm up the atmosphere, it also dries things out and it's primed for fire. So if we add in an El Nino, you know, there's a lot of firefighters and climate scientists very, very worried about what that might mean in terms of fire behaviour and weather.
not not to not to mention what it might mean in terms of agriculture and farming. Look, I I just you know I, I've often been out into the regional areas fighting fires, and I expect I will be again this year as a volunteer. I'm now a volunteer RFS member. Speaking to the people out on the land, they just get hit over and over again, whether it's drought, heat wave, fire, flood, and all of us in the city rely on them. So spare a thought for our brothers and sisters out there doing it hard because it's I, I just hope it doesn't swing back to a severe El Nino. And that that's the, the warning that's going out. And we are already, already seeing some signs that it's drying out very, very quickly, which, you know, is alarming, is concerning people. Well, what we're seeing, we're seeing grass fires around Inverell, the north of New South Wales, Tamworth, out near Burke, so the, the, the fires are starting out near Wentworth in western New South Wales. So often uh, you don't have to worry about fires out there because there's no fuel because it's quite arid. But now it's covered in grass. And as we get to the hotter months, the rain tends to drop off. We haven't got the Indian, Indian Ocean influence now, the Indian Ocean dipole pushing moisture across the continent. So it will, it's drying out and the grass cures. It's a natural process where it goes brown and dies. And once that happens, just a spark from a um, harvesting machine, a cigarette by the side of the road, or a lightning strike, and you have fire. And if you have wind, they move very, very quickly. They can burn thousands of hectares in just a few hours. And the, the modelling is not uh, is sort of cold comfort at the moment. Uh, you've been looking at some of the models and they're sort of not telling a great story. No, look, the, the outlook, seasonal outlook for bushfires, uh, there's a big red patch across all of western New South Wales. So that's for the grass fires. Southwestern West Australia, um, I know as we speak there's emergency warnings there with fires in the forest areas and but also on the wheat belt they're having fires already while they've got massive floods up in the Kimberley. So welcome to Australia. South Australia, they're battling flooding of course coming down the Murray but northern and northwestern parts of South Australia they've already had some big grass fires. So this is what emergency service chiefs are concerned about. We're getting compounding disasters and the Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements warned of this, said just as we're getting off our knees from one impact, we're bowled over by another. And that's what the climate scientists are saying. They've been saying for decades, this is what we can expect. We're now living through that. This is a supercharged climate system leading to extreme events and what we've coined the phrase now unnatural disasters because they're nothing like what they used to be. They're far worse and they're long tail. The recovery afterwards can take years. Former Commissioner of Fire and Rescue New South Wales, Greg Mullins, speaking with Michael Condon. Now this year, 180,000 fee-free TAFE places are on offer in Australia as a result of a joint initiative between state and federal governments. The courses included in the initiative are targeted at at industries with recognised skills shortages like agriculture. The inclusion of agriculture in the fee-free places comes as unprecedented labour shortages continue to impact the industry. Lucy Cooper filed this report. Across the country, Australians will be able to access agriculture courses such as a Diploma of Agriculture, Certificate 2 in Wine Industry Operations, Certificate 3 in Brewing, Diploma of Conservation and Ecosystem Management and a Certificate 3 in Dairy Production, 
for free in 2023. Describing the current labour climate as a workforce crisis, Queensland Farmers Federation CEO Joe Shepherd welcomes the inclusion of agriculture in the fee-free TAFE placements. It's really, really pleasing to see that agriculture has been included in the free TAFE placements that have been announced. Obviously, ag is an essential industry for the broader community. So it's really important that we support farmers and the whole supply chain right across the sector throughout this workforce crisis. So um, obviously, like many other industries, agriculture in Queensland is facing extreme workforce shortages, and this is having a real impact on farm, on production capability. We are aware of farmers who are significantly reducing or changing what they are planting this season, or in some cases not planting at all, because they're just not confident that they'll be able to source the workforce um, needed at half harvest time to get the crop crop off. So we're really pleased to see that agriculture has, has been included. Where university doesn't quite fit your education mould, TAFE does offer qualifications for those wanting to pursue a career in agriculture, like Trinity Johnston. Miss Johnston studied a Certificate 3 in rural operations in Toowoomba last year. TAFE is honestly one of the best decisions I've made for myself, which is surprising. I didn't have any real expectations going in because you know, expectations build disappointment and all that. But I, I really love TAFE. I was very sad to have finished it and have to leave, but it was really fun. It's best learning experience I've had so far. It was very hands-on. There's a... We did all our theory in Toowoomba, so we spent one day of the week doing that. And then other times that TAFE actually has a farm in Warwick. So we'd go out and go to the farm and for the other days and, you know run around on quads and chase after cattle and do sheep and plough fields, just anything. TAFE Queensland teacher Vanessa Kane grew up on a property in Narrabri, northwest New South Wales. Now teaching agriculture and rural operations in Toowoomba, Miss Kane hopes fee-free courses will provide relevant skills to workers entering the industry. As a TAFE teacher, it is a requirement to be to have not only the qualification but actually have industry experience um, and then it is a requirement um, to be a teacher to keep that industry placement and knowledge up to date uh, so that we are still up to date with trends um, and keeping current in the industry. I think it's a fantastic opportunity for many people that are trying to uh, source a job um, and the most exciting thing about agriculture is the industry uh, is so vast in its job requirements and opportunities within the industry. It ranges from being on the ground working with animals through to tech, uh, the innovation that is coming through to for improvements on um, production is, is just fantastic. So it really is a, a broad um, area. So basically with Anyone with any interest uh, can find a job in the agriculture sector. For those currently on the land, TAFE does offer recognition of prior learning to help get your qualification quicker. But QFF CEO Joe Shepherd says for the government's initiative to be successful in drawing new labour to agriculture, it has to reflect the industry's needs. So often uh, in agriculture, you know, training is needed in regional and sometimes very remote areas and sometimes this training is, you know, needed to be delivered to small groups of employees. 
the simple economics of delivering training where it's needed in ag sometimes doesn't stack up with the current delivery models, which are significantly focused on high volumes of students. Having now completed her TAFE qualifications, Trinity Johnston is now off to work her dream job on an outback station. I am going to Western Australia uh, in the Kimberley region, which is the farthest west you can go from me to work on Napier Downs station. So I essentially just want to be like a station hand. I want to know everything there is to know because there's so much. And I'm very surprised that I got that job because it's a very big operation and the advertisement actually asked for experienced station hands. And I'm not an experienced station hand. Like I have a knowledge base and like skills base, but I'm definitely not experienced. So I'm very lucky. Trinity Johnson finishing that report from Lucy Cooper. Now, lots of people are packing their bags and heading off on holidays at this time of the year. And have you ever considered a farm stay? There's a growing number of rural properties that are diversifying their income. And Chasnay Estate, just outside Swan Hill, features 15 acres of olive trees and they've also started planting eight acres of lavender. But the newest addition to the property is tiny houses. Gary and Isabel Chasnay took Kelly Hollingworth for a tour. We're in our first tiny house. We've got a a nice queen bed with floor-to-ceiling windows on all sides, even from the bathroom. So wherever you are in the tiny house, you look outside and you're just surrounded with olive trees, a few wild daisies at this time, peace and quiet. The tiny house is completely off-grid, sustainable, compost toilets, beautiful deck out the front, barbecue fire pit, armchairs. Do as little or as much as you want on the farm. And it's even got... A small kitchen? Yep, kitchen, microwave, hot plate, fridge, reverse cycle air conditioner, hot and cold water in the shower, sink, all of the amenities you'd find in a hotel but without the traffic and the people. It's pretty incredible what you can fit in something this size, isn't it? It is, yeah. Look, we're, we're super super happy with the way it's come out and um, it's, it's just a nice, relaxing place to, to stay. There's another tiny house that's going to be at the farm soon. How does it compare to this one so this one uh, is suitable for two people so the next tiny house will be able to host four people so there's a mezzanine double bed upstairs and then a sofa bed downstairs where so four people can come and stay what prompted you to go down the path of putting in accommodation so at the moment we go to melbourne every weekend to do farmers markets yeah and that's quite hard work it's it's long long hours it's 400 kilometers each way and that takes up two days plus the two days of of prepping for the markets so we're hoping that by having the 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 farm shop and the, the tiny houses and all the things that are going to go on at the farm that people come to us so we don't have to do so much traveling and yes we can sell our products here in our farm shop there'll be things happening all year round so for an example during the summer period so spring summer uh, will be the lavender harvest so people can come along pick their own lavender take photos in the lavender field or they can look at coming in any time from april through to august for the olive harvest so we've got five varieties of olives table olives and extra virgin olive oil but people can come along see how it's all done we get asked so many times in melbourne how it it is actually made what's the process 
Um, and people are genuinely interested to come and learn where their food is coming from. A lot of children are interested. There's a lot more children now starting to eat olives, which is a good thing. So, yeah, we just want to educate a few of the people on where their food is actually coming from and how it's produced, how it's made. COVID's been a bit of a double-edged sword. Some people are desperate to get back out there and travel, but then I suppose tourism providers to some degree are a bit nervous about what might happen next, whether there would be lockdowns again if things get dire. Did these things ever cross your mind when you were going down this path? Yes, yes, of course. That's, that's something that we have to take into consideration. But it, it also affects us with, this, with the markets too, you know, with the lockdowns too. So either way, whichever way we go, I think it would affect us in the long term. I think we just have to all be positive and and not not let us let it stop us doing what we want to do and and prevent us from you know trying to make a future over in the northeast of the state in the king valley another couple have been hosting guests on their farm for 10 years however their style of accommodation is a bit unique traditional mongolian yurts annie brown spoke to owner of the yurt alpine retreat sharon jarrett about how it all started i wanted to build something up the top so we could enjoy the views because we've got really nice views and a girlfriend of mine said, well, why don't you get a yurt? And I didn't even know what a yurt was. So I started researching them and really liked them. Next thing, a girlfriend and I, both 60-plus-year-old ladies, went to outer Mongolia and bought a container load of yurts back. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> which was a real adventure. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. How would you describe it to somebody as to what it is? Um, well, they're the round tents that they live in in Mongolia and they've got um, half an inch thick pure wool felt all the way around them which keeps them warm in winter and cool in summer. And they've got two layers of heavy-duty canvas on top of the felt. It's got a glass dome that you can see the stars through. Also, uh, in the winter, they've got a little Mongolian stove that's really effective for heating. So people love it in the winter up here because they've got, you know, lovely low-lying cloud. The the earth sort of sits above the clouds often. There's also an outdoor bath. You can sit outside in the bath and under the stars. And uh, you have to light a fire under it to heat it so you... You feel a bit like a, a, a missionary at a cannibal's picnic <laughs> in the, uh, in, in the Cooking bar. yourself in a soup. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like that. <laughs> so has it been worth it financially as a value add to the farm? Yes, it has, definitely. See, people like the idea that they everything's there. They don't have to pack anything. So they've got the feel of camping but they've got a comfy bed and a hot shower and, and they don't have to pack all the stuff you know is it something that you'll continue to do do you think for the many years well, to come as long as i can you know like i said i'm 72 now but while i'm in good health and able to do it i'll, I'll do it because i like i like meeting people and it's sort of you know the business suits my personality really for people wanting to do it the council is the if you're doing anything a bit left-wing, they don't really want to deal with it, you know, because it sort of creates problems for them. But that's sort of what we found, that we had to really battle the, the planning department, but they've, they got rid of the, that planning department. Now they've got a much better one. <laughs> Good to hear. That was Sharon Jarrett from Yurt Alpine Retreat at the King uh, in King Valley speaking to Annie Brown. And I did Google 
what a yurt looks like. It, uh, it looks pretty cool. I reckon that'd be pretty cool to go and stay in. You can read more about uh, this story online and see a picture of a yurt at abc.net.au slash rural. That's all we've got time for, t- for today. Thanks very much for your company. I'll be back with you at the same time tomorrow. Have a good rest of your afternoon. It's coming up to news time. It's one o'clock. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.